Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Um, those of us who are on Skype, I apologize for the delay this morning. We were, yeah, pretty much all set to go, and then the painter that's painting our building that we come, our, our engineering came and asked us to move our cars. So that's why we're a few minutes late. Apologies for that. Let's begin by praying together at this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for his death and resurrection, his death to forgive our sins, his resurrection to demonstrate that everyone who believes in him will be declared righteous forever in your eyes. Father, this morning we ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we continue to study the Gospel of John. Help us to see the person of your Son ever more brightly. We ask also, Father, for us to be equipped so that we can share the good news, especially what we're learning in the Gospel of John with unbelievers who need to know that your Son is their Savior. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, good morning again, everybody. This is the first Sunday of March, which means we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of our service this morning. All right, let's begin. Our title of today's message, of course, comes from our passage today, which is the following. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's in quotes because that's spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ in, in, at the second to the last verse of this chapter. And we'll be um, reading that next that final passage this morning. If you would begin by turning now into the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting in verse 48. This is where we pick things up this morning. John, chapter 8, verse 48. I'll give you a moment to get there. All right. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And yet you have not come to know him. But I know him. And I, if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. Now, to catch up to where we are this morning, we ended off last week um, in, in verse 47. We had seen that Jesus spoke some very damning words to his Jewish opponents. 
Remember that they desired to commit the most heinous murder imaginable, the murder of their Messiah, the one by whom the Lord said he would fulfill his promises to Abraham. Therefore, they couldn't be the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham looked forward to the promises. Jesus Christ is the Messiah who will bring about the fulfillment of all the promises, not only to Abraham, but also to David and the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied about. And yet they were going to kill him. I want want you to uh, make sure that you see things from Jesus' point of view. It's because sometimes I think we give too much credit to the viewpoint of the Jews, meaning that, well, like they, 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 they didn't really know who he was and they have to be excused. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ knows who he is. And we, we, we need to adopt his perspective on every one of these things and to understand that he is the Messiah, regardless of what the Jews thought. Remember, the Jews were, were not capable of understanding the truth about who Jesus is because they were unbelievers. Again, I want to remind everybody that the expression the Jews does not refer to the entire race of Hebrews. It refers specifically, John uses it, to talk about the hostile leadership in Jerusalem, the high priests, the Pharisees, and then the, those who followed them and th- those who shared their hatred in the viewpoint. Go ahead. I'm just waiting for coffee. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were waiting for me to take a breath. (laughs) So again, they couldn't be the descendants of Abraham because Abraham believed God, believed the promises, and here they were trying to kill the one who would fulfill all the promises to Abraham. Instead, they were not Abraham's real children at all. They thought they were, but they were not Abraham's real children. Of course, this was a shocking thing for them to hear, because if there's one thing they thought and relied on, it was that they were descended from Abraham. They, they took their special relationship with the Lord from the, from the fact that their ultimate ancestor was Abraham. So to hear that they weren't his real children was a shocker. Now, remember, they hated Jesus. They wanted to kill him. Now, think about it from God's point of view, because they, they, they followed up by saying, well, all right, Abraham's one thing, but our father is God. But they wanted to kill Jesus, the son of God. If God were actually their father, they would love Jesus because the father loves Jesus. They would they would if they were the children of God, they would love Jesus and obey him because remember, Jesus is speaking the words of his father. If they knew the father then they would understand the words that Jesus was speaking and that he was speaking the truth and he was the Messiah, was the Son of God. But they hated him. He proceeded from God. He told them this many times. God had sent Jesus to them. They had had seen that before with the prophets. God sent the prophets to them. And here they are actually doing the same thing to Jesus that they did to the prophets. They rejected the prophets. They wanted to kill them. And in a couple of cases, they did. And now they're doing the same thing over again. Only now, the one who is speaking to them is not only the the, the ambassador from the father, but also the son of the father. Therefore, not only were they not Abraham's children, they weren't God's children either. And Jesus told them both of these things, remember, right to their face. He says, you're not Abraham's children and you're not God's children either. Then he went on. He said, "No, no, God is not your father. Your real spiritual father is the devil. You couldn't say a more shocking thing to a Jew than to say that to him. By the way, they're not going to accept it. 
Why? Because he's attacking the very foundations of their legacy as Jews, the very foundations of how they saw their, they saw their relationship with God being, and they couldn't accept that. It, they were not going to accept that. What did they do? Well, they do the same thing a lot of human beings do. When they're accused of something, they know they're guilty. What do they do? They turn around and try to accuse you of the same thing that they're doing. And that's, that's what they did. They accused Jesus of the very things that were, in fact, true about them. It was true that God was not their father. It was true that they were not the children of Abraham. It was true that actually their father was the devil. They, they refused to even consider those things that Jesus was saying. So instead, they decided to accuse him of the very things that were, in fact, true about them. Let's look again at John chapter 8, verse 48. John 8, 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Verse 51 indicates that Jesus has not given up on the Jews, meaning the leaders that want to kill him. He hasn't given up on them because even to them, notice this, truly, truly, I say to you, everybody in his audience, that if any one of you keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly means that Jesus is about to say a most solemn and and true thing. Amen, amen is repeated for emphasis. You pay attention to what I'm about to say. That's what Jesus means when he says truly, truly. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But again, in verse 48, they're turning things around. They're saying, you know what? You say that we're illegitimate. You're a Samaritan. You're not really a Jew. You say that, 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 that our father is the devil. Actually, you have a demon. And, of course, Jesus denies that. We know that's not true. And he points to his father and he says, I'm saying everything I'm saying because the father has told me to say it. I'm not seeking my own glory. He says, the father will, will seek the glory for me. The father is the ultimate judge. And I put it all in his hands. Now, in the, in the minds of the Jews that he was, was preaching to and accusing things of, no, they thought, you know what? No Jew would ever tell another Jew that he was not a child of Abraham. That just wouldn't happen. So, what, so given that that's what they thought, they, had, they, they, they concluded and, and accused Jesus. They said, well, you have to be a Samaritan because that's what the Samaritans say about the Jews. They, they say that they're worshiping on the right mountain and that, that they're actually the descendants of Jacob. So you must be another Samaritan. Jesus said also that their father was the devil. They said, well, wait a minute. If we know that they thought that couldn't be true. And that, therefore, they said anybody who would say that has to be of the devil. This was their mentality. And that's why they accused him of having a demon. Now, the thing about it is, is when they heard these things and they made the accusations back to Jesus, it became very clear that they they didn't even acknowledge or accept or want to receive or even consider the truth, which was that Jesus was their Messiah and the Son of God. In other words, he was qualified and had the authority to say everything he said about them. And and if they had an ounce of humility, they they would have stopped in their tracks. But of course, again, we saw that they were of their father, the devil, 
Remember, we saw that they reject the truth because it's the truth. So they were not going to accept who he was. They wouldn't even listen to his words. And he told them, he says, listen, I'm speaking to you and I'm not saying this to glorify myself. In other words, he's not defending himself. He speaks the truth, but he's not saying what he does to glorify himself. All he did was speak the words which his father gave him to say. And so that means that the father told him to say, tell them that they were children of the devil, that their father was the devil, for example. He spoke these things about his opponents, basically saying that you are not true Israel. You are not of, of Abraham and, and of God. Okay, Not all who are descended from Israel, Jacob, are actually true Israel. And they weren't. He said that because he was obedient to his father. His orientation was his father. His orientation wasn't himself to say, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to tell him who I am. His orientation was the same as his father. And his father told him, you don't glorify yourself. Leave that to me. I want you to speak these words, knowing that they are going to be rejected. A very difficult thing to do. But by calling Jesus a Samaritan and demon-possessed, Think of it. They are telling the son of God that he has a demon. Think about that. He, they, he, they're telling the Messiah of the Jews that he's a Samaritan. Whether they realized it or not, they robbed him when they said those things of his rightful glory and honor. They robbed him of all of that. And again, he didn't fight back. He didn't defend himself. He didn't seek his own glory. But by doing that, again, they are trying to steal his rightful glory they refused to honor him. They totally dishonored him. And by doing that, they were dishonoring the father who sent him, the one they claimed to be their God. Please turn to John chapter 5, verse 21. John chapter 5, verse 21. Again, I hope you're reading the Gospel of John on a regular basis because Everything is is building. We've said this. I've said this to you many times now. There are really there are really three storylines. Okay, in the Gospel of John, one is the answer to that question, "Who is Jesus?" and and we see the answer to that throughout. We see that having to be repeated throughout because of the unbelief of the Jews. Then, then the second storyline is the is the development and the increase of the hatred and rejection of Jesus by his opponents. So this is who Jesus is. Watch how the rejection of him builds. And then the third storyline is, and here are the ones who believe in him and notice the development of their faith. Those are the three storylines, the major ones. Who is Jesus? Which throughout, from the beginning to the end, we, we, we learn from the Gospel of John who he is, how he was rejected, and how the intensity of that rejection built and built and built. And at the same time, how his disciples and believers grew in their belief and grew in their understanding of who he is. John chapter 5, verse 21. This is the last time he'd been in Jerusalem. He says, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life. Even so, the son also gives life to whom he wishes. The Jews understood that the father can raise the dead. But now Jesus is saying, and God's son, who is also God, also gives life to whom he wishes. They wouldn't accept that because he was saying that he's God's son. Verse 22, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, 
so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And notice this. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then verse 24. Truly, truly. Again, amen, amen. He's saying this is important. This is solemn. Pay careful attention to what I'm going to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. They avoid the judgment because they believe. Notice here it's believe him who sent me. You might say, I thought we were supposed to believe in Jesus. Yes, but remember, he wasn't seeking his own glory. And so it was everything that the father said about him that they were to believe. But it was still belief in Christ. And they have eternal life. The moment that they believe in the son, Jesus, as God's son, they have eternal life. At that moment, they will never come into judgment. Why? Because they've passed out of death into life. By the way, that's the opposite of the natural process, isn't it? Don't human beings pass from life to physical death? He reversed that. He said, you've passed from death into life. So so it's clear that he's not talking about physical death and physical life, even in chapter five. And he tells them, I'm talking about eternal life. They heard all of this. They heard all of this. Again, they heard it and they rejected it again and again and again. As that happened, Jesus would ramp up the intensity of what he was saying, the clarity and, and the power of how he was identifying himself. And the more he did that, the the more harsh was their rejection and persecution of him. But notice what verse 24 of chapter 5 says, because this applies to you and I. Each and every believer, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've already passed out of death into life. Now, again, if, if not for the rapture, everyone here is going to die physically or be raptured. But for the most part, the large, large majority of people aren't having bad Christians were in the, in the rapture generation and therefore most die physically. And yet, so the death, again, he's talking about is not physical death. It's something else. We're going to see what that death is all about into life. So this is a, I want you to keep this in mind that each and every believer is already passed out of death into life. Each and every believer will never be judged. Cause I'd like you to turn now back to John eight Go to verse 51. We'll pick things up. John 8, 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is basically just a follow on to what he had said in John chapter 5, verse 24. John 5, 24, he says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and has passed out of death into life. Jesus is saying the same thing in John 8, 51, but he's saying it in a different manner. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. This is a bold and a radical statement. I want you to notice, first of all, that he doesn't say that if anyone keeps God's word, you will never see death. I mean, that would at least be palatable to the Jews. They would accept that, you know, in, in one manner or another. Our God gives life. If we keep his word, we won't we will ultimately 
They weren't clear. You know, Jewish theology wasn't really clear on the afterlife like we have from the revelation in the New Testament. But they could at least accept the possibility that one who keeps his word, the God's word, would never see death. They, and in fact, they knew from their history that that there were certain individuals, one really, um, who actually this actually happened to two, actually, that never that never as we as far as we know, as far as the Bible reveals, died physically. Elijah being one of them. Okay, so they could accept perhaps the fact that God's word, if anyone hears God keeps God's word, he will never see death. But that's not what Jesus says. Notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, here's a human being, they thought, saying, if, if you keep my word, you will never see death. It's a bold and radical thing to say. The word of Jesus standing before them in a human body. If anyone kept his word, they will never see death. Now, as usual, the Jews are totally earthbound in their thinking. When they hear that, never see, never see death, never experience death, they're, they're automatically thinking physical death. That's what they thought Jesus was saying. If anyone keeps my word, he will never experience physical death. And to them, that was ridiculous. And, and of course, that's when you think about it, that's pretty much our experience. It's pretty much what, what the Lord told Adam in the garden, right? Dying, you will die. So if this were physical death, this was a, this was a ridiculous thing to say. But that's not at all what Jesus meant. And we just saw that in John 5, 24. He is clearly talking once again about eternal life. Now, if he's talking about physical life, then the death he would talk about, would, it would make sense that it was physical death. But if he's talking about eternal life, then the question is, what kind of death is that? What kind of death is that? And what he's really saying here is if anyone keeps his word, he will never experience the second death, the second death. In other words, everybody is born. Everybody dies. All right. Then there's an experience of, of, of resurrection. And that's either, as Jesus said in chapter five, it's either a resurrection to life or a resurrection to judgment, meaning after physical death, there is either, there is either a, a second life, eternal life, or a second death. And what Jesus is saying is, if you don't keep my word, you will experience the second death also. If you do keep my word, you will never experience that second death. Well, what is that second death? That, that is terminology, of course, from the New Testament, actually in the book of Revelation. That's the best way to describe it. But what is it in terms that perhaps the Jews could understand in terms that Jesus has already spoken of in the Gospel of John? Well, just like the life that he come to bring is eternal life, the, the, the death that those who don't believe in him is eternal death. Does that make sense? Physical life, physical death, eternal life, eternal death. All right. That's what he's talking about. It's suffered by each and every person who does not believe in Christ. Jesus had said earlier that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's another expression for this second death. You'll die in your sins. It means to be under the judgment of God forever. It means to be under the wrath of God forever. And these are things that Jesus has already said to them. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. John chapter 3, verse 36.
John 3, 36. This is, by the way, this is actually the, uh, the, 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 who's actually speaking here is the writer of the Gospel of John. But notice the principle. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the message of the Gospel of John, right? I have John says, at the end, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of the Jews, the Son of God, and that by, by believing you may have life in his name. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Simple, straightforward, profound. Then the, op- the other side of it. But who, he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now, they saw physical life. Think of it. They knew that they had physical life. But when it says that those who do not obey, believe in the Son, will not see life, what kind of life is that? Eternal life. Then he goes on. The wrath of God remains on them. See, those, those are the two choices, as it were. You either, you either see life, have eternal life, or you'd never see eternal life. But instead, the wrath of God remains on them. That, so, so the wrath of God exists, okay? A lot of people won't say, a lot of people say, well, the wrath of God, that was him in the Old Testament, but here it's just the love of God. And I mean, you probably heard that love of God in the New Testament. Well, certainly the love of God is, is highlighted in the New Testament. It was there in the Old Testament, too. The wrath of God, perhaps you could say it was more demonstrated in different ways in the Old Testament with God's discipline and judgment, not only of the Jews, but of their enemies. That's certainly true overtly. But here we have the wrath of God. It exists. And and the way in which the New Testament, the way in which Jesus speaks of it has to do with after your physical death. That's really when you either you either want to be under the love of God. You want to be under the love of God. But you if you don't believe in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you forever. They will, what is the second death? Second death is a slide that should have been in there but that I didn't put. Anyway, you don't have to worry about that. It means that he's un- they're under the wrath of God and the judgment of God forever. Oh, I think I have that. Yeah, that's that's that is what he means by death, being under the judgment of God and the wrath of God forever. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see that eternal life, but rather the wrath of God remains on him. Now, of course. Even though he's talking about the second death, once again, his opponents don't hear that. They can't comprehend that. They refuse to talk about anything other than what's under the sun, as Solomon talked about, earthly in nature, right? Jesus came from heaven. They couldn't, they wouldn't accept that. They always wanted to talk about Jesus only in terms of his physical life, only in terms of what's going on on earth. When in fact, Jesus told them, I'm from heaven. He will also say later on, you are of this world, I'm not of this world. And they had no capacity or they refused in any event to even consider that realm that Jesus is coming from that. They, would, they wouldn't even consider that. So here they think what he's saying is that whoever keeps his word will never die physically. To them, that's ridiculous. As a matter of fact, to them, it's blasphemous because only God can give life. Okay, let's go back. John chapter 8, verse 52. Jesus said to them, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Verse 52, the Jews replied, 
said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also. And yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, my word, you say he will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died. Surely the prophets died also. Who do you make yourself out to be? You know, it's ironic because that question that they ask is really the the main subject of the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? But not who he makes himself out to be. Right. That says that you're claiming to be something that you're not. You make yourself out to be, but you're not really. They have it exactly backwards. He's not making himself out to be anything. It's who he really is. Notice in verse 52 that they bring Abraham back. They bring him back into the picture once again. They had said that Abraham was their father. Now they're bringing Abraham back once again. As a matter of fact, Abraham, that name Abraham, occurs 10 times in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John and nowhere else in the Gospel of John. So he's, Abraham is, is, a, is a presence in chapter 8. They bring him back into the picture. And what they're saying is, you know, Abraham obeyed the word of God. Abraham kept the word of God and he died. The prophets declared the word of God and they died, too. They're saying, how could you say that if anyone here keeps your word, they will never see death? When Abraham kept the word of God and died, when the prophets declared the word of God and they died, too. See how that was blasphemous to them? See, see, see how they, they, they said the only explanation they could think of was that he did have a demon. So again, notice the great irony here. We've seen irony a lot in the Gospel of John. Because the fact is that Jesus actually is much greater than their father Abraham. Surely in verse 53 they say, you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. See, they thought that was the, that was the clincher. They thought they had him. But in fact... Jesus actually is much, much greater than their father, Abraham. But he's not making himself out to be anything great. He actually is the son of God. And again, that's the framework I I want all of us to think about is to is to realize that Jesus knows who he is. And he is the Messiah and the son of God. They're blind and they're not going to hear that. And as and and as this happens, he comes more and more. Um, bold about saying who he is, and since they're not going to listen, they become more and more outraged by who he is, or who he said, who they think he says he is. All right, let's go to verse fifty-four now. John chapter eight, verse fifty-four. So again, they they said to him, "You must have a demon." Abraham died. Prophets died. You're not greater than Abraham, are you? Who do you make yourself out to be? John 8, 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. In other words, he's not making himself out to be anything. He's not trying to convince anybody of anything about himself. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. That's a general principle, by the way. Right. There are all kinds of people in our lives, perhaps now in this generation, more than any before, who glorify themselves. What, what the principle here is that if you glorify yourself, that glory is meaningless. It's meaningless, right? And ultimately, the only person who has the right to glorify you is the God, the Father, because it's his glory and he'll share it with who he wishes. By the way, we know as believers in Christ from Romans chapter 8 that we've already been glorified according to God's plan. 
right? Those whom he justified, he glorified. But you see, we don't we didn't do anything for that. We are not. He doesn't tell us to boast of our glory, but he is sharing with us the fact that as a believer in Christ, because you you are identified with Christ forever, you will you will share in that glory. Okay. So they 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 hear him and they say that. You know, I mean, he speaks to them. He says, "If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Even Jesus, if he glorified himself, it didn't wouldn't have meant anything. It's my Father who glorifies me." Of whom you say, he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I do know him. In fact, if I say that I don't know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. (laughs) Once again, Jesus won't glorify himself. He relies on his father to glorify him. That same principle holds for us, you know. We, we, are, we, are, we are to humble ourselves, right, under the mighty hand of God, right, so that he may raise us in the proper time. Same principle. Much greater in level when it talks about Jesus, his glory, because he is the son of God. So he doesn't glorify himself. He refuses to do that. He puts it all in his father's hands. And he knows that in good, in good time, the father will glorify him. Now, his father is the one that they call God. In other words, they're the ones that are making themselves out to be something they're not. You see it? Because they're not. God is not their father. They call him God, but they don't know a thing about him. These people. Now, I'm not talking about all the Jews. In every generation, there's a remnant. There are always those who believe in the Lord, who, who, who hear the word of God and believe it and keep it. Not these people, though. Not, not the crowd that, or at least a portion of the crowd there that wants to kill him and rejects everything he says. And as he said, they're, they're of their father, the devil. Those people don't know a thing about him. Why? Because their father is the devil and there's no truth in the devil. And therefore, there's no real truth from God in them. They don't know a thing about God. And of course, that's demonstrated amply by how they treat Jesus. If they don't honor the son... And they're not honoring the Father. They don't know the first thing about who God is. Jesus, on the other hand, knows everything about his Father. And as the dutiful Son, he obeys his Father in every particular, the opposite of what they did. They disobeyed God in every particular. Jesus obeys God in every particular. By the way, that's part of knowing God. That's part of knowing God, knowing the the heart of God, the will of God. You know, don't boast in your might or your or your or your riches, but boast in this, that you uh, you understand God, right? That you know God and obey him. OK, let's continue. John eight fifty six and 57. Your father, Abraham, Jesus brings up Abraham once again. Now, again, he has just finished saying, OK, if, if I know God, my father will glorify me. My glory is nothing. I've come to know him. And you bring up Abraham as if he's your father. But let me tell you something about Abraham. Let me tell you the truth about Abraham and me. John eight fifty six. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. He was glad. Your father, Abraham. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And yet Jesus is saying that their father Abraham 
rejoice to see anticipated the day of Jesus, but anticipated when Jesus would come. And he was so and he actually saw it. So not only did he look forward to, but he saw it in some manner. We're going to spend a little time because this is a pretty intense, bold statement. Here we have, again, especially for those Jews who saw everything as being earthly. They, they saw that Abraham, you know, lived and died. That was 2000 years ago. Here's Jesus. And he is saying, if anyone keeps his word, that they will never see death. But Abraham died. And then Jesus says, your father, Abraham, who died 2000 years ago, rejoiced to see my day. Notice here again, he personalizes it. He doesn't doesn't say the day of the Messiah. He doesn't say the day when when the Lord would fulfill his promises. He says, my day. And in so doing, he's identifying himself with the one through whom God would fulfill his promises. My day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews are apoplectic at that point in time. And it gets worse and worse for them. Jesus is not packing down. He's telling them who he is. He's telling them more and more facts about who now he's talking about who he is in relation to Abraham. And he's saying the most outrageous thing of all, that Abraham saw my day, even though he died 2,000 years ago. And then they said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Again, they're looking about it. They're time bound. They're earth bound. They're saying, now when they say he's not yet 50 years old, it doesn't mean he's 49, by the way. That was just a convenient number. All right. He was actually at this time probably 32. All right. We won't get into that. But it was just a round number. And they used it because, you know, in comparison to 2,000 years, even 50 years is nothing. They're saying, you've only been on the planet, you know, less than 50 years, and yet you've seen Abraham? You know, again, that's ridiculous. And then, and then he says that, and he's bringing it back to Abraham, and this incredible statement would definitely send these Jews into orbit. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, their father, supposedly, rejoiced. And he anticipated the day of Jesus. And then he actually saw it. This brings up a a pretty interesting question. The question is, what day was that? What day did Abraham anticipate and then see and rejoice and be glad about? What day was that? And how did Abraham see it? How did Abraham see this day? Now, if you read the context, seeing that that the Jews are asking him about something that how, how could you have been back 2000 years ago when he said when he says Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He actually the context suggests that he's talking that Abraham actually saw it. We'll see about what that day is. But Abraham saw it during his lifetime on Earth, during his lifetime on Earth. By the way, that is not at all the same thing as saying that the day of Jesus occurred during Abraham's earthly life, only that he saw it during his earthly life. Now, we really can't be 100% certain about what Jesus meant when he said, my day, because he doesn't elaborate here. So since we don't see it spoken of directly, 
we need to gather some facts that from other places in the Bible and put them together and make a reasonable judgment of what that day is or was. And that's what we're going to do. First of all, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 15, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Why? Because Genesis records Abraham's earthly life. And so if, if we're going to notice anything, we should begin with the portion of the Bible that actually narrates the life of Abraham. Okay, so we're going to take, we'll take a look at that. We're going to Genesis 15, verses 12 to 14, for a purpose. Genesis 15, 12 to 14. Okay. The principle here is that God did give Abraham glimpses of events that would happen after his lifetime. So he did see in that respect into the future because God showed him the future. Now, now what he showed him here is not the day of Jesus, but this is just to establish the fact that what, during Abraham's lifetime on earth, God revealed to him events that would happen after his lifetime. Since he did it here, it's certainly true that he could do it about other things as well, including this day that Jesus refers to. Okay, so let's read Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. Okay, the setting for this is when God makes his covenant with Abraham. It's an unconditional covenant. As a matter of fact, when when the Lord um, ratifies the covenant, actually Abraham is asleep. So this is not a covenant two-way. It's just God's promises to Abraham. And he had, a, he, he, he had Abraham perform a ritual. And it's really just laying out different animals of sacrifice, cutting them in half and walking in between them. Okay. Verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Now, remember, by this time, God had already promised Abraham that his descendants would live in the land. So here, this is something else. God said, now, know for certain that even though ultimately your descendants will live in the land I promised you, before that, they will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Well, they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So God gave Abraham a glimpse of what would happen to his descendants for 400 years. And then verse 14, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Now, this is a, this is a really vivid, accurate picture, foreshadowing prophecy allowing Abraham to see into the future. And what is he talking about? Well, it would not be in the land of Canaan. It would be in another nation. They would be enslaved. They would be oppressed for 400 years. And then then the Lord will judge that nation and then bring them out and they'll have many possessions. So, So what he's talking about, of course, is their enslavement in Egypt, right? And then, and then when they're delivered out of Egypt, and it's actually true, if you read the book of Exodus, that when they came out, the, the Egyptians allowed them to take all kinds of riches with them. This is very um, specific in terms of the vision. 
So in other words, we do know for certain that Abraham received glimpses, was able to see into the future, because we see it here in Genesis 15, 12 to 14. The Lord enabled him to see when, the, when, the is, when Israel would be in slavery to Egypt, and then when the Lord would deliver them, would deliver them. All right. That's in the Old Testament. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to Hebrews now, chapter 11, verse 13. Because here, too, the writer of Hebrews speaks about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. All right, so I'm going to actually give some context. We're actually going to read some verses before verse 13, quite a few actually. Just to give the background, verse 8, okay, Hebrews eleven eight. by faith, Abraham. So you can see now the writer of Hebrews is talking about Abraham and his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, okay, he was called in his father's na- in his father's land. He was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. That's the promised land, Canaan. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah, his wife, received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these, that's by the way, Abraham, Sarah, and others that the writer of Hebrews had mentioned earlier in chapter 11, like Abel and Enoch, for example, and Noah, He said, all these died in faith. What does that mean? It means that they they had an assurance of what what, was going to happen in the future, and they believed in the promises of God. They didn't see it, right? That which is seen is not of faith. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. They didn't actually receive the promise. Abraham didn't actually receive the promised land, okay? But having, having seen them, here's the key. They didn't, he didn't receive the promises, but he saw them and welcomed them. Remember, we just saw in John chapter 8 that, that, he, that Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and he saw it and was glad. So he didn't receive the promises here. He, I mean, receive, right? He saw them. He even welcomed them at a distance. That's that rejoicing. And ha- having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. We're going to go back and, and recount the promises, okay, the things that Abraham died in faith without receiving, but saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Those who say such things in verse 14 make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, 
had they had been thinking of the country from if if they had been thinking of the country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return there. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he would receive the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was to he, Isaac, whom it was said in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And he considered and God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. So I wanted you to see because we've got a little time at the end. I wanted you to see that here the writer of Hebrews is accounting the different promises and things that Abraham saw that would be but that we could take and say, well, we know he saw these things. So let's see if there's a reasonable explanation that connects these things that Abraham did see as promises and Jesus talking about his day. Okay, so we, we can we again, we can't be certain, but we can gather these facts. So so now here we see that in verse 13. That he didn't receive Abraham, didn't receive the promises, but he saw them. He saw them and he welcomed them at a distance. Well, what promises were they? I'm going to recount them. We just read it. Okay, a city. Descendants as the stars of heaven in number. A heavenly country and city. And looking at Isaac. Now, remember, he said, Isaac, remember, Isaac, Abraham obeyed God and he brought his son up to Mount Moriah and he and he laid the wood for the sacrifice, built the altar and then placed his son and was about to kill him in preparation for Isaac to be the sacrifice. But, of course, the Lord intervened at that point in time and said, stop. I know now that you fear me. And then he took a ram and said, you substitute this ram for your son. So what 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 because the book of Hebrews says that Abraham looked at that situation and he and he and he was confident in putting his son even on that altar to be sacrificed because he knew that God had promised that through through Isaac, his his descendants, those promises would come. And so if God even allowed him to kill him. He knew he'd raise him from the dead. And then and then we saw that that was a type, that word type. Right. That notice that in verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even back from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. But wait a minute. If he received him back from death as a type, well, 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 Isaac didn't die. So that word type means that. Isaac is illustrating something that would happen later that would be the actual fulfillment. What am I saying? I'm saying that from that, we know that Abraham also saw the fulfillment of his promise because there would be a descendant who would die as a burnt offering and be raised from the dead. So let me say again, he saw promises from a distance, a city, a nation. He saw descendants as as as, as number, numbered in, as the stars of heaven in the sands of the, of the seashore. And he saw a descendant that would die as a burnt offering and be raised from the dead. Question, what do they all have in common? What, what does the city that Abraham saw from a distance, 
all the descendants, the heavenly country, and a descendant in particular who would die as a burnt offering and be raised from the dead. I'll tell you what they all have in common. The Messiah would fulfill every one of those. The Messiah would fulfill every one of those. The city would be the, would be Jerusalem. The descendants, of course, would be all the remnant of Israel that would come into the kingdom. The descendant, of course, is Jesus himself. Now, of course, the opponents of Jesus were incapable of understanding any of this. They, they, for one thing, we know that they were not experts in the scriptures, even though they claimed to, because they didn't understand the meaning behind them. So they, what they thought, again, you know, was that Jesus was saying he was alive when Abraham walked the earth. And so they said, you are many years short of even 50 years old. And you say you've seen Abraham. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. You're out of your mind. Okay, let's go back and finish up in John chapter 8, verse 58 and 59. John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, and here again he uses that expression, truly, truly. Okay, this is solemn truth. Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. They were saying, come on, you couldn't have been there when Jesus, when Abraham was alive. It was 2,000 years ago, right? Now, that, that was outrageous enough, right? That's not, that's impossible. You were born... 35 years ago. How could you have been back there 2,000 years ago? Well, Jesus takes a step further. He says, not only was I there when Abraham, but even before Abraham was born, I am, okay? I am before Abraham was even born. Verse 59. They heard that, and that was the last straw because they knew what he was saying. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. (laughs) You know, many passages in the Bible state that Jesus Christ is God. Many do. As a matter of fact, I did a quick read through the Gospel of John yesterday. And I I, I identified 24 of them just in the Gospel of John. So 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 it's overwhelming, the truth that the Bible indicates that Jesus Christ is God. Book of Hebrews, Book of Colossians, many places. But I got to tell you something. Few are as as potent and succinct as verse 58. And notice that this comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Some people would claim Jesus never said he was God. I retort, of course he did. You just don't understand anything about the Bible because you don't understand the significance of that expression, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. The God, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm now talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he says, I am, he said, they knew right, that he was talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'd just like you to turn to Exodus chapter 3 as we, we wrap up this morning so you can see the reference. Is Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Before Abraham was born, I am. 
Exodus 3.14. The setting here is when God is calling Moses to be the great deliverer, the one who would go back to Egypt and challenge the Pharaoh and ultimately lead the Hebrews out of Egypt, out of captivity. Exodus 3.14, when, when God first appears to Moses in the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Who is speaking? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, I am. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus said also, I am. He says, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. He was declaring that he's Yahweh, the God of Abraham. And, and so and so and the Jews knew it. How do we know that that he knew it? That they how did how we know that the Jews understood that he was declaring himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? <laughs> really simple. They decided to stone him without a trial. Because they recognize for sure he's claiming to be God now. He's actually using the, the name that they wouldn't even speak. And he's using it about himself. Before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> so they, 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 they knew that he was declaring himself to be God. <laughs> and that's why they decided to stone him without a trial. I say without a trial because Jewish law said that even in that case, you needed to have a trial before you would kill a blasphemer. What happened, though? Well, because his hour had still not yet come, he slipped away and he left the temple. But as we close today, I want you to realize something about the Gospel of John, and that is that from start to finish, the Gospel of John over and over again proclaims the deity of Christ. Okay, I want to see a couple of passages, and then we'll get ready for the Lord's Supper. Remember, I said from beginning to end. Let's go to the beginning. John chapter 1, verse 1. From beginning to end, the Gospel of John proclaims the deity of Christ. John 1, 1. And again, a, a quick survey of the Gospel showed at least 24 places where he, the Gospel of John declares Jesus to be God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, we studied this, of course. The word is Jesus Christ because later on in chapter 1 is written, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's clearly Jesus, God in the flesh. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, the son of God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Who's the creator of all things? God, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things came into being through the word, Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus Christ is God. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Right off the bat, in the first three verses of this gospel, we see that the gospel of John declares that Jesus is God in the flesh. We know exactly who he says he is. We know and he knew that he's God in the flesh. And he knew that he and the Father were one and the same. 
And then at the end, let's go with the, the, the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. From the beginning to the end, in many places in between, the Gospel of John proclaims that Jesus is God. John chapter 20, verse 31. Very end of the Gospel. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. From beginning to end. And that believing this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life in his name. All right, let's close and get ready for today's celebration of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to take an in-depth, serious look at what you're saying about your son in this great gospel of John. We thank you, Father, that we need repetition, and therefore we, we, we are grateful for that in the Gospel of John, that over and over again, you tell us who your son is and that you add details about it as we go along. You put it in different perspectives, like today where we saw that Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am, that builds more confidence and and understanding of who he is. We know that as we continue, we'll see this again and again and again. And so as we Go to the, to the Lord's Supper this morning, Father. We would ask that you would have the Holy Spirit guide and direct us by bringing in some information from the Gospel of John as preparing us for the celebration where we bring into remembrance the death of the Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, this time let's uh, prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I hear choirs of heavenly angels singing outside. Otherwise known as the painter. (laughs) This morning in our passage in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I won't glorify myself. The Father will glorify me. Well, we know in chapter 8, when he he says that, that his hour had not yet come. That's why he was able to slip out at the end of chapter 8 when they wanted to stone him. But when John 17, we get to John 17, this is Jesus alone with his Father, then we learn that the hour has come at that point. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In verse 1 of of chapter 15 that I just read, the hour has now come. It hadn't come in chapter 8. He talked about the fact that the Father would glorify him, but the time for that hadn't come. The hour hadn't come. But now 
the night before he's going to go to the cross, he's, he, he, he uh, communes with the Father, understanding that now the hour has come. That hour. Well, that, and all he says about the hour is that the Father will glorify him. And in so doing, Jesus will glorify the Father. Well, the hour that had come by chapter 17 is the hour when Jesus would go to the cross. That's what he's talking about. And that's so remarkable when you think about it. Because you, we hear about the glory of God glorifying his son and the son turning around and glorifying the father. And perhaps we have a mental picture of that. Perhaps we think about when Jesus goes back to heaven. And certainly that's a glorious thing to see the son returning to the father. But here he doesn't say that. Here he says that in his dying on the cross, he glorifies the father and the father glorifies him. It's a remarkable thing. It, it points out the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ to the whole plan and, and, and even the uh, relationship between God and his son. Because that would be the moment in which both the son and the father would share maximum glory when he went to the cross. After that, he would raise him from the dead. And that would be a demonstration of the glory of God. And then the son would ascend into heaven and return to his father. But it, but it's all centered on the death of the Lord. And that's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We proclaim his death, which was a moment of absolute glorification of him and his father. And we proclaim it regularly until Jesus comes again. We, we proclaim the fact, the truth, that when he died on the cross, he died for all the sins of the world. He offered himself as a ransom for all people. And, and therefore, what John said about him is absolutely true. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God finding a way to take his enemies, the human race, and reconcile them to himself, even though in his justice he could have nothing to do with those who were dead in their sins. He found a way through his son and the son's suffering to, to marry both his love and his justice. And that they also came together in that moment of maximum glorification. The essence of God was, was able to operate completely with the human race, both his justice and his love. And so Paul writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's about to be on the cross for you, bearing your sins. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for allowing us not only to celebrate this, this supper, this time when we eat the bread and drink the cup, but also allowing us through the Spirit to understand the significance of what we're doing. That the word of God, the New Testament epistles that just tells us exactly 
what we're doing, that we are bringing into remembrance the very death of your son and really all that that signified, all that that accomplished, both in terms of your glorification and his and the redemption of the world. We thank you for this great gift. And we ask too, Father, that that as we live our daily lives, we would continue to understand the significance of the bread and the cup, that it points to the body of the Lord on the cross dying for our sins, and the cup would be his blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that washes clean whosoever believes in him. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, just remember that every Thursday we do have Bible study. Uh, we have it here at Cam Engineering for people who are here locally. And we have it on Skype for those who can't be here. It's at 630. We're continuing in the prophet Isaiah. Right now we're looking at the subject of idolatry and we're bringing it forward from what Isaiah faced with the Jewish people of his day to what we face today as the situation in our world and all the temptations and idolatry that is around us. So we're going to apply it and we're going to we're going to talk about how we interact with people and unbelievers and have to deal with that. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again today. Thank you, Father, for one another, that you bringing us all together as the one body of Christ. And thank you that that we can have this one ritual, but that it's really what what counts is the meaning behind it. And we thank you that your word is so full of descriptions and explanations of the death of your son. We uh, ask now, Father, that uh, you watch over and guide the church, the body of Christ, your children uh, this week. And we pray especially, Father, for those who are in places of persecution. We just ask, Father, that you give them the perseverance that leads to character and hope. And that you give us the opportunities to support and help them as they do so. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.